Well, we'll spend no time here on this first point because we dealt with it last week, and I hope you need no further information than for me to say, based on what we have studied, at least to the extent that we could get into it, that Moses is the author of the book of Exodus. There are some important dates concerning Exodus, though, that we need to work through. There are two primary theories as to when the events in this book take place, and I will try to show you my view, that the more traditional view that I think takes the biblical data uh, seriously. So let's take a look at this. First Kings chapter 6, verse 1, I've printed up here for you. That's the first passage to write down. It says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Well established that in the mid-10th century B.C., we have the establishment of Solomon's temple. Solomon, of course, the second king of Israel, builds the temple, peacetime, which he can thank his father for. David had established peace on his borders. He had a wealthy reign, builds a temple around 967, 966 B.C. So that's our first indicator with some sound dating judgment in the mid-10th century B.C., and here it says 480 years after Israel came out of the land of Egypt. There's a date for the Exodus in the the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and then we have a time stamp. Another one here, Judges chapter 11, verse 26, which, which reads as follows. While Israel lived in Heshbon, in its villages, remember Judges, we have established the land and the conquest of, of Joshua, as we'll get to in detail, and now we have this cycle of Judges. This is Jephthah spe- uh, speaking, by the way, the judge, the military campaigner. And in its villages of Aor, and it's, it says, okay, Heshbon and its villages, and Aor and its villages, and all the cities that are in the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? So from the establishment of the, the, the settlement rather of the promised land in these cities, Heshbon in particular, we have a, a time frame of 300 years. So 300 years from the time that we have this cycle of judges, which I've talked about the dates, we'll get into that when we get to it, uh, basically he's saying we've had this land occupied now for 300 years. This is about uh, this puts Jephthah at about 1105, so the 12th century, the beginning of the 12th century, end of the 12th century BC. So that gives us a time frame that helps us as well. We'll, we'll get to that. That would put the Exodus at the date I gave you last week or two weeks ago when we were dealing with establishing some time parameters of 1445 BC. That is called the early date of the Exodus. There's a later date of the Exodus that I won't take much time to get into and the reasons that they're proposed, uh, particularly because of the cities of Ramses that's mentioned in Exodus, which seems anachronistic out of time order if Ramses the Pharaoh reigned after that particular time and we couldn't have the Exodus taking place with a city that's named after Pharaoh that hasn't risen to power. That's one of several reasons that it's given, and, and yet, uh, which I think is one of the strongest, and yet I need to remind you, particularly when we're going through the lineage in Luke, the genealogies of Christ, we have problems sometimes because we have people's names that are uh, frequent and used. And as you all you have to do is study the Pharaohs, and we have so many repetitive names, not just sequential names, uh, but names that that show up hundreds of years later. So I don't, I don't want to shadow box the other date, but there's lots of reasons, including Chronicles, with references to how many generations there were from David uh, or in his men, Haman in particular, all the way back to Korah in the time of Moses' rebellion or 
Korah's rebellion against Moses of, of 19, 18 generations to Solomon would make it 19. We know Solomon's reign, the early date of the Exodus is what I'm trying to uh, say I, I think is well established. And if that's the case, then we can build some other time markers as we work through this. If we're going to then say, well, what's going on here between Genesis and and Exodus, uh, we can build a little timeline here. If Genesis ends at 1800 BC at the death of Joseph, which is roughly where we had it, 804, 1805 or 1804-1800, uh, the death of Joseph. We've got then the beginning of Moses' birth, the beginning of Exodus, starting with Moses' birth there in the first chapter at 1525. If that's the case, then we have 275 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And that's a period of time that is helpful to understand because of a couple of things that are stated between these two books. Uh, that gives us a distance. If we have an early date of uh, Moses' exodus from, from Egypt, then we, we can figure out some of these things that goes on between the explanation of how many people we have as our descendants of Jacob or Israel, which are 75, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 14, and the that's a small family reunion, till we get to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. And we're basing this on a statement of about 600,000 soldiers or foot men of apt and, and, and draftable age, if you will. And, and if you do the math, it says besides women and children and also the mixed multitude. So we've got at least anywhere from 2.3 to some would estimate up to 3 million people. So you've got the growth from a small family reunion at the end of Genesis to the city of Houston, frankly, uh, of about 2.5 million people. And you say, well, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of growth. And there's so many things you can do in terms of math to figure this out, but it's, it's, it's expected and reasonable. It's what you would have. If you think about the time frame, 275 years, that's the year that Ben Franklin was inventing the stove. So this is before our nation was formally established. And if you think about the growth rates, uh, this just fits just perfectly and just fine in terms of mathematical growth rates. As a matter of fact, it makes a lot more sense than moving the dates anywhere else. So 275 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, and what you've got is God being silent about a little more than half of the time that we had between Malachi and, and Matthew. And what's going on here is we've got the people of Israel growing strong, which sets up the drama at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So what's Israel's total time then in Egypt? We have another date marker as it relates to what the Bible has to say regarding years. Let's look at this. Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord, again, host means armies, all the people, the masses of people, the crowds of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So if 1875 BC is when Jacob and his family go down to Egypt because of the famine, you'll remember. And then you've got the Exodus at 1445. See, this fits perfectly again with our understanding of the date of the Exodus and the dating that we started with in terms of Genesis. And all of this fits nicely together. 1875 to 1445 BC, 340 years. All the time markers fit. 
the genealogies fit. I didn't put up the reference in, in, in Chronicles, but the guys who want to say, well, there's a late date for the exodus from Egypt, you've got to, you've got to jam 19 generations between Solomon's day and Moses' day, which puts a generation at about 15 years, which is not enough to have that many generations. You've got to, I mean, it makes perfect sense if it's, if we've got the time frame that we've been dealing with here from the 10th century, which is about 450 years till the time of Moses on the way back. That makes a, a generation about 25, 26 years, which is just about perfect. It's just about right. All I'm saying is all the time indicators that we have in the Bible, if you take them seriously and you read them seriously, you're going to say this all fits perfectly. What doesn't seem to fit for some people is we would expect certain references that we don't have. Uh, like where's all this reference to Egypt conquering the lands of Canaan in the time frame that it would make sense that there would be some biblical history of that. We don't have it. We don't know why we don't have it, but we don't have it. A well-established sense of history at least, and it's a secular history about Egypt's doings during the time uh, of, of Moses and Joshua. And they would say, well, where's all the information from Egypt? Well, Egypt's were great. The pharaohs in particular who thought themselves to be gods were great at propaganda, and that makes, I think, perfect sense why we didn't have a lot of that reference anywhere in an early or late date. Nevertheless, I'm saying the things that they're looking for to try and date these events in the book of Exodus, some scholars will say, well, I'm looking for extra biblical information that would corroborate that. But the biblical data that's there from every different author in every different period of the biblical uh, time frame, everything matches perfectly for me to say that the Exodus was in 1445-1446 BC. So all of that, maybe like last week, to tell you things that you may not be battling in terms of what you read, but you will read these things, late date, early date of the Exodus, just like eventually you're going to run into the JEDP or PD theory rather, and so we talk about them just so you can be familiar and you can understand them. The pharaohs is the next thing we need to talk about. Uh, And this gets even more squirrely only because Egyptology and the study of the pharaohs continually adjusts and fine-tunes the dates. So we're doing our best here, knowing the dates, and we can be confident in in the dates, at least relatively confident, though not all biblical scholars will be as confident as I'm trying to be. But if I set the Exodus at 1445 BC, then I can take what at least we have currently in terms of the history of the pharaohs and say, okay, we, we, can, we can mesh these together and understand what's going on. So if you do the research, you can just even go anywhere uh, into history, Egyptian history, and try and reconcile what we've got going on in reading about Egyptian history, which is rich and and verbose. There's so much in terms of Egyptian history. And if you go to the museums and all the rest, there's so many things. And it was such a well-kept preservation of history in part because of the arid and hot desert climate down there. But we have so many things uh, that you can read and you start to fill in the backdrop of what's going on in the book. Exodus chapter 1 in verse number eight, it says, now there a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so if we take our time frames, that's probably going to put us at Osmosis uh, the first, the Pharaoh Osmosis the first in, in the beginning of, of Exodus. Now, lots of years transpire right here in the beginning of Exodus when you have a king that is now going to oppress the uh, Hebrews, a Pharaoh. A Pharaoh means king, right? Hamenatop the first is 
the king we would assume, the Pharaoh we would assume, is the one spoken to, spoken of in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Now these are the ones that are most important, and you can see the sequential order of their names and their uh, dynasty here. This is, by the way, if you're into Egyptian uh, history, this is the 18th dynasty of the Egyptian pharaohs, back to the 15th century BC. Thutmose I, Thutmose II, and Thutmose III. Now, these are critically important because this is the time frame in which Moses is born in, in 1525 BC. We can be relatively confident about his dates because we have enough time indicators in the Bible to say, okay, if the early Exodus date is right, and I believe it is, then we've got Moses being born around 1525 precisely. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, there was great oppression here in this period of time when they were groaning to the Lord uh, after the death of Thutmose II. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, the pharaoh, that is, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. Now we've got a group the size of Houston living in a vast empire. This, by the way, Thutmose II's reign and and, and leadership was one of the most prosperous times. In in fact, he handed off, much like David did to Solomon, a tremendously uh, prosperous kingdom. And so what you have going on here is Thutmose III, who historically, as Alfred Erdersheim points out, is just a likely candidate. It all fits together in terms of the timeline, even though secular Egyptologists still continue to fine-tune these dates. But Thutmose III was probably the pharaoh that Moses is having the showdown with. He, interestingly enough, has no male heir to sit on the throne, and uh, the sub-dynasty shifts there after Thutmose III, and uh, he reigns for a period of time. Uh, after 1445 BC. But this is probably who we're dealing with. Dies without an heir, followed by Amenhotep II of Egypt. And if you look through your Bible dictionaries and, and commentaries, you'll have some reference, depending on when those commentaries are written, naming a different pharaoh. As a matter of fact, some, thinks it is, some think it is pharaoh Amenhotep II who follows Thutmose, but I think it makes perfect sense, and I'm with Erdersheim on this, even though he's an old scholar, that this is the perfect fit. So, if you read about Thutmose III, even on Google, you'll, you'll get a sense of what kind of king it was, and you'll get the back story on the pharaoh that Moses is having this showdown with in the book of Exodus. All right, epics of the pharaohs and the life of Moses. Life of Moses breaks down nicely, and it's good for us to think in these terms because this is basically one of the ways to outline the book of Exodus. So think of it this way. Moses was born in 1525, as I said, B.C., He dies in 1405 after the wilderness wanderings. Remember, he's left up on Mount Nebo. He gets to see, that's modern-day Jordan, if you've been to Jordan, and you're looking across the uh, Jordan River into the Promised Land, not allowed to go in. So 1525 to 1405 B.C., that's a life of 120 years. And it breaks down nicely because for the first 40 years, he lives in Pharaoh's court. But you remember, he sees the Hebrew slave being mistreated. He kills the man, buries him in the sand. It gets out and he flees from Egypt. That's in 1485. Of course, you can do the math yourself, but I'll put it up there for you. Then he goes into the wilderness, and interestingly enough, he lives for 40 years in the Midian desert for his father-in-law as a guy who grew up with all the best education of the ancient world, and now he's out there living in the desert, trying to get enough to drink and eat every day and take care of these animals, and he learns a lot about desert living, which, by the way, was God's perfect training for him because God was going to call him back to Egypt to confront Thutmose III and let the people of, and as God through him was going to let the people of Israel 
out of the Egyptian slavery, and then he leads them in the wilderness for 40 years. This is just an interesting breakdown of his life that's so nicely packaged for us and described for us in Scripture. 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. And as you remember, the descending timeline of the ages of people in the Bible, this fits perfectly with the anti- and post-Diluvian world that I talked about last week, the flood. But you have um, biological time frames continuing to descend at this point. But 120 years old, it fits perfectly with the time frame of the Old Testament. This is the average age or thereabouts in in this particular time. He lives in the court with a silver spoon in his mouth. Now he lives in the desert. God gets him ready to live in the desert as he leads in the desert for the last 40 years. This is really what the book of Exodus is all about. Main concept in Exodus, as I told you, as we looked at the timeline books, is the word redemption. If you think of the word Genesis, you should think of the word beginnings. If you think of the word, uh, the book Exodus, you should think of the word redemption. God is going to redeem his people. And that means that they are now in the hands of someone, but God wants them back. He's going to redeem them, just like the people want your bottles and, 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 and your glass bottles and your plastic bottles back. There's a redemption price on them. They think, you know, if they pay you, they can get them back. And that's what God is going to do. He's going to come in, pay the price to get his people back and take them into the promised land and start to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The main concept of the book, redemption. Key chapters, uh, I usually say key chapter, but in this case, they're such monumental chapters. And like Genesis, so much going on in Exodus, I'll give you two. I gave you one on the chart, which is Exodus chapter 12, which is when they actually leave the exit, uh, leave the, the land of Egypt in the Exodus. Just like over our doors, we have the word exit, basically coming through uh, Latin. We've got the word exit, which means to leave. The book is called the book of leaving. It's about God redeeming them so they can leave. And when do they actually leave? Well, they leave in chapter 12 at the end of the plagues. Chapter 20 is the other one you need to remember. Anyone going through the Bible should understand and know where the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments were given, and that's in Exodus chapter 20. So we're going to grant the book of Exodus two key chapters, 12 and 20, and both of those are good to commit to your memory. Key people, of course. You know Moses. He's more than a prophet, but certainly he's known as a prophet. He's a great leader. There's no king at this time, so he's not called a king, but he is, for all intents and purposes, the regal monarch of the people. He's in charge and everyone knows it. And when you try to upend his leadership, God is going to vehemently defend him as his sister and brother learned in um, Numbers chapter 12. But he's the prophet. He is also acting in many ways early on in the Levitical line as a priest. His brother becomes the first high priest, but uh, he's also a leader and, and sort of a king. And in that sense, you even see the connection to Christ, right? Prophet, priest, and king. And uh, that, we're not going to have time for it probably at the end, but when we get to Deuteronomy, you have that picture of God promising he's going to raise up one that's like Moses. And in that regard, he does raise up Christ, who's the ultimate fulfillment of everything that Moses was attempting to fulfill in the people of God as prophet, priest, and ultimate leader. Aaron, I said, it was his brother. They're all Levites. And because of that, God had chosen Levitical tribe to be the priestly tribe to do that intercession. Thankfully, today, we don't need a priestly tribe because all of us are priests before God. We're uh, a kingdom of priests and we are supposed to have access to God. We don't need the intermediary of someone. And that's why uh, we would never want to call the leaders of a church priests as the Catholics do, because that's the word rather certainly carries the overtones of the Old Testament mediation of the priesthood. He becomes the first high priest, the ranking priest who has special obligations and special responsibilities assigned to him that uh, we'll read about or we'll see here at least as we think through the rest of Exodus. 
course, we need to know Joshua, and most of us do from our Sunday school days. He's Moses' lieutenant, his understudy, his, you know, you know, like Paul's Timothy, he's his right-hand man, and he leans on him heavily and becomes his administrative successor for uh, the nation of Israel as they're coming into the promised land. Pharaoh, of course, looms large in the book. He's in a key figure here that certainly fulfills the role, if we're going to think in terms of typology, of the one who keeps us captive, just like it says in Hebrews, that we're held captive uh, and enslaved to the fear of death, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, He certainly fulfills that poetic role in this book as a historical figure. Thutmose III, at least in my study, that's who I believe it was. Again, a pharaoh simply means he's the king. He's often called that. Matter of fact, one of the passages we read here in Exodus 1, he's called the king of Egypt when the king died, who didn't know, or when the new king arose, the king of Egypt didn't know Joseph. Geography. I tried to give you a very simple map here that you might want to at least get your bearing on it before we fill a few things in here to give you a sense of what's going on and where it's happening. You can see that's the Nile River and the Delta. You know what's called a Delta, of course. I hope you do at least because the capital letter Delta looks like that, looks like a triangle, and feeds into the Mediterranean Sea there at the top. And then down at the bottom, we'll fill some of these land masses in here in a second. But so many things here that are worth noting in terms of how the flow goes from left to right or from west to east. Let's start with Ramsey which I believe is certainly named after a very common name in in the ancient Egyptian world. But this is critical because this was a region given to the Israelites. This is where they lived. And it starts in Joseph's day back in Genesis 47 when it said Joseph settled his father, Jacob, and his brothers. They came in, 11 brothers, and they gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh does this under Joseph's leadership and because of his value in his eyes. And he lives here in northern Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. Of course, the further you go down the Nile, well, you have a lot of cities along the Nile, but this becomes really a territory of the Israelis as they grow into a city that becomes huge, right? A couple of cities, but cities that um, are going to be populated by the time they leave, as many as you would see in the city, a big city like Houston, which by the way, what are we? 3.3 million people in Orange County. It's, you know, not much smaller than our entire county. Pithom here is an Egyptian store city where these Egyptians ended up enslaving the Israelites. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, They lived in Ramses, but now they become oppressed by the Pharaohs and So this is one of the cities that they're made to build. This city in the northeastern Nile Delta was a uh, very important city and one that Pharaoh had had them build. Midian becomes an important city in the story. And you can see how far this is as you go all the way over almost to the edge of this map that I've given you. Midian is hard to uh, nail down in some ways because there's a bit of a nomadic nature to Midian. But certainly you can put it all the way over to the right on your map. This is where Moses flees. And this is where he, after he killed the Egyptian, ends up leaving, as I said, at age 40 to go and live as a, as a shepherd working for his father, Jethro, who, by the way, is said to be a priest of Midian, which is an interesting twist, a religious man of some kind. And he marries her daughter, Zipporah. 
They have two sons, as you remember. So he's a shepherd here, way out in Midian. He's trying to get a long way from Egypt, his old home, and rightfully so. He doesn't want to run to anybody traveling anywhere because you're not going to travel anywhere really going that direction. Uh, he's out there in the desert. When Pharaoh heard of it, oh, Exodus 2, 15 is a passage you might want to jot down for Midian. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well, which is much like we see in biblical language, the poetic language of he's bummed out at this particular point. But God's going to pick him up and do some good things for Moses' life. Sukkoth, he comes back, of course, at age 80, and God calls him back to lead the people out. This is the first place where the Israelites stopped after their departure from Egypt. So they're heading toward the Red Sea, and there's going to be a major parting here of, of the waters. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, and as they were trying to get out of town with the soon to be pursuing armies of Pharaoh, this is where that is taking place. Now we're going to get into a little bit of the wanderings here. The wilderness of Shur. Exodus 15.22 says, When Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea after the dramatic crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the army of Pharaoh, they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness but found no water. And you can go there today and still find no water uh, as you go into the wilderness of sure. It's a desolate place. Wilderness region, yeah, not a fun place to hang out. That was after the crossing of the Dead Sea. Now we're moving south. And again, there's even some debate about this because it's hard to find any archaeological evidence for a lot of things we're looking for. But I believe this is pretty well accepted among those who take the biblical message seriously as to where Moses ends up. In the wilderness of sin, which seems aptly named, but it has nothing to do with what you're thinking of. Nevertheless, it's a region as you head to the south of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, here's a passage to jot down. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So they're heading down south. Now, of course, you would know, I'm sure... This dramatic spot right here, Sinai. And what's interesting is when Moses was in Midian, he had spent some time here in in this region. And so he's back. He's come back and leading the people down to Sinai. This is a mountain that cannot be overstated in its importance in biblical history. It's also called, by the way, Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. And this is where Moses brings the people. But what's ironic is it's where he got the call initially, somewhere near there in Horeb, near Mount Sinai, to go and bring the people back at age 80. So he's left here. He goes in. He leads the people out. They wander back down south to Sinai. Exodus 19:18 says, Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke went up from it like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So here is this mountain that is smoking. It's the place where God is going to deliver the Ten Commandments to Moses. Uh, there's a monastery down there, St. Catherine's Monastery. If you ever want to read some dramatic stories, you can read about uh, Constantine van Tischendorf, who found some of the most important New Testament documents at that monastery there, St. Catherine's in Sinai. Sometimes, at least when I used to take people to Israel, one of the extension trips, we would take trips down to at least one year to Sinai. And yeah, remarkable place. You can visit it virtually on the computer, which is much more comfortable than doing it in person. So there's a little bit about what's going on and where it's going on in our geography. Let's get an outline of the book real simply. This will probably be the most complicated outline of the night, even though it's very simple. We've got the Exodus in chapters 1 through 18. Let's just break this down as simply as we can. God preps Moses. The scene is set. The drama is set. They're being oppressed. They're crying out. They want help. And so God is going to raise up Moses in the first three 
I'm sorry, the first four chapters. Then we have the drama of all that goes on in the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, as I call it. It's not technical language, obviously, but they're going to have the face-off between Moses and his God and Pharaoh and his gods, as we'll see. You then had them actually being delivered from Egypt. And if I were to say, what's the most important chapter in Exodus, you'd say, well, one of them is chapter 12. So you see here that they're leaving after the sin plague. They're in chapter 12. And so we've got that story in in chapters 12 through 18. Now God is going to use the rest of this book, chapter 19, chapters 19 through 40 to reveal his rules. And we're going to get a lot of information and a lot of rules and a lot of things will be very helpful for us to think through the establishment of what God wants done in Old Testament worship and the covenant of Moses, the law code. So he reveals his rules in the second half of the book. First thing we get is a real discussion about the laws that relate to the covenant. Right in the middle of that, of course, you'd say, what's the second most important chapter in Exodus? You'd say chapter 20. That's where the Ten Commandments are. Ten Commandments are just part of an entire law code. It was just those were ten representative laws on those two tablets. And so you have in this section, 19 through 31, this great list of laws that relate to all kinds of things, as we'll see. We have a story of failure and restoration, sadly, in this short little section here. And these, what is that, three chapters, 32 through 34. The failure, of course, you might remember, is the golden calf. Moses is taken too long. His brother gets pressured, or so he says, into building the golden calf, which was not just blatant, was not blatant idol worship, at least not the way they were thinking about it. They rationalized it, even as I was just at the museums this summer, uh, looking at Egyptian uh, artifacts and Egyptian sculptures. So many of the Egyptian, the Egyptian way to think about the worship of deity was not that that deity was the animal, sometimes it was, but it was that their deity rode on the animal. And so the animal was just a vehicle for them to, to remember and to, to, to worship their gods. And so God then, they said, we need to be like the culture we came from and put Yahweh on the back of this golden calf, which of course was detestable to God and not authorized by God, just like Nadab and Abihu learned. You keep the rules when it comes to ceremonial worship, and unfortunately they didn't, and it was an awful situation, and God, rightfully so, had Moses get very angry and discipline the people. But thankfully they were restored, at least as well as you can expect after being confronted by Moses. Then they built a tabernacle, which we're going to talk about in a minute. There's so much involved in that tabernacle construction, and it becomes the prototype for what's going to be built by Solomon. As a matter of fact, that same instruction that is given for the construction of the tabernacle is the same instruction, although without all the permanent accoutrements that you find later with Solomon's temple, that become the blueprint for what even they want to build in Israel today. The basic concepts of what we're going to see in chapters 35 through 40 are exactly the basic concepts that today are there in, say, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, where they would like to construct the third temple. So this is this is it. This is the beginning of God revealing what he wanted to see in terms of the symbolic and ceremonial worship and in a building. But let's think through some things that we should at least address and be familiar with if we're going to cruise our way through Exodus. One would be the 10 plagues, which I didn't give you a lot of space for, but the reason I think they're worth laying out is because every one of these, as many Bible teachers have tried to point out, is they had parallels to the gods that the Egyptians trusted in. And every one of these uh, had a correspondence, except for one that we don't know of, and I'm sure it had a correspondence, we just don't know historically what it was. But all the rest of these, through the well-preserved history, the ancient uh, history of the Egyptians, we have a pretty clear picture of what these were. The Nile, of course, was the life source for all of Egypt. And so, of course, they had a god, happy the Nile god, uh, was the god that was being taunted, if you will, by God, 
and held in derision when he turns the Nile into blood. The life source becomes a source of, of death and, and a putrefied um, stream of blood. So he's being uh, dethroned, so to speak. The frogs, they had a very uh, important god and deity in Egypt, Hept, the god who took the form of a frog. And you can even see these. As a matter of fact, I saw several of these um, in, I don't know if it was in the British Museum or the Louvre this summer, where you know the frog is a very important article, an artifact of worship in ancient uh, Egypt. And so here's God basically through the mediation of Moses saying, you want frogs, I'm going to give you frogs. And you'll have frogs until you're sick of frogs because God is the God of frogs and you don't have a frog God. I'm the God of frogs. This is the one we don't know, at least the resources and research that I've done. I mean, you can stretch into something, but I, I think there, we're, we're missing something historically here about the lice or the gnats. And I don't know the parallel there. So I'll leave it as a question mark. The fourth plague of the flies, we, we had a god, and I've even seen that one recently. I think I saw it in person this summer. It was a, the, a god that took the form of a, a fly. At least that was the medium of the worship of this particular deity, an important deity, and it was certainly being called to mind when the flies uh, infiltrated the land. The cattle were attacked. Of course, cattle and um, the bull and several forms of, of cattle and, and, and variations of cattle were sacred in the Egyptian life of the 15th century BC. Not unlike, maybe not to the same extent that you might find today in India with uh, Hinduism. There was something important and sacred held above other um, livestock, to the, the, the worship, the, the veneration at least of cattle. So all the cattle now that you revere so much were being killed. God was trying to make a point, and they need to learn that point. The sores and, and the boils, there was a God of, of health, a God of healing, a God that was supposed to keep us healthy. Sekhmet, a God or the deity of good health. Plague number seven was damaging hail. Hail is bad, and the hail that was there in the t- seventh plague was destructive. And here it comes out of the sky. The sky is dumping projectiles and missiles down on our head. Well, they had a god that called the Newt God that they prayed to was the god of the sky that kept everything copacetic and peachy in Egypt. And now they could pray all they wanted to Newt, and he wasn't going to care for them because there was no sky god, only God, the god who created the sky. The locust destroys the crops. They had a crop god, Seth, the, the, the crop god, and uh, God was showing that he has sovereignty over the crops. Darkness, this may be the one you think of first, and I think it is all ramping up to this, and that is that this is probably the most prominent and familiar historical god of the Egyptians, Ra, the sun god, and now you have darkness, a darkness that is so dark, Exodus says that it can be felt. There's absolutely no illumination at all, as we like to say, couldn't see a hand in front of your face. And then it culminates, of course, in the death of the firstborn. And I mean, I wrote down Isis and Orissus, who are the gods of life, the sustaining life and the gods of producing life. And yet really, this may be better to put next to it Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh and his descendants were seen to be deified. It's like North Korea today. These people that led them, they, they, uh, they, they venerated as gods themselves. And so the Pharaoh was perceived that way, and he couldn't even keep his own son alive in this last plague. So the ramping up of these plagues certainly showed that God was looking at a society that's not much different than ours that trusts in a lot of things. It's interesting, as we see today, we trust in things like electricity, which 
All you need is a hurricane to wipe out electricity in big swaths of our country. Uh, we trust in our nice big buildings, and of course, all it takes is an earthquake to knock those down, as we've seen this week. Even though those building codes are pretty poor down in Mexico City, uh, that wasn't a very big earthquake as compared to the one that they expect on the San Andreas Fault. Uh, I guarantee you the earth beneath our feet that seems so stable and the edifices that we build and the electricity that we pump through our our streets and into our homes, these are things we trust in and God can at any point remind us that we should be trusting in him and not those things. Just for the completeness of your thinking, you should know, and it's not hard to remember, the first three plagues, the the Israelites were not exempt from those. The next, uh, what is that, six, not four through nine, they were exempt from them. And then the last one, of course, you remember, we have the smearing of the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death will pass by so that their firstborn, firstborn won't die. So they are exempt from that, but only conditionally, and that is that they kept the very dramatic symbolism of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 in the shedding of blood and some kind of innocent animal that you were to take into your home for a certain number of days and then get so accustomed to as a uh, cute little perfect fluffy animal that now is being sacrificed and the blood is being put on the doorpost so that through your home uh, there's not an entrance of the destruction of death. That picture is powerful. Matter of fact, so much so that Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, says that Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the reason death does not have its sting in our lives as Christians, the ten plagues. The tabernacle we need to look at. This is letter I at the bottom of the page. The tabernacle, they got a little cutaway here for you. I know this is very small, but at least gives you a sense of what we've got going on. It's a seven to seven and a half, well, probably seven and a half to eight foot tall curtain that goes all the way around. It's 150 feet long, so that gives you a sense of how big it is. It's not as big as you may think. 75 feet wide, Uh, which is, I mean, good size, but it's not huge. If you look in the very back of the cutaway there, you see a little box. That's the Ark of the Covenant. That little room is 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, and 15 feet high. So it's a perfect cube, just like Solomon would build a perfect cube, different dimensions, but a perfect cube in the in the temple. The tabernacle is called a tabernacle because it means a tent. It's a tent. They can pick up all these stakes and they can move it through the desert as they go from place to place. And they camp all the tribes around this tent. The external, that whole tent, you can see it's got a cutaway of four different cloths or or canvases over the top of it. It included skins and canvases. So you had a four-layered tent that was in the middle of this 150-foot-long by 70-foot-long compound. And that was a 45-foot-long tent by 15 feet wide. So if you follow that, you've got a holy place, which is the external antechamber, if you will, and that's 30 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet high, and then the room in the back, I mean, that's just an office size, basically, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And this was what they used as their worship center. In the front, you can see the different colored, if you're looking where you see the bull there, the, dif- the f- different colored curtain, that's a 30-foot wide entryway to get through this eight, seven to eight-foot tall curtain that went around it. So you couldn't see over it, but you could get in it. When you get in it, you meet some pieces of furniture. So let's talk about some of the furniture that you're going to see. The first thing, well, let's go to the center, I guess. I didn't do this maybe in the smartest order, but in the very back, I talked about the Holy of Holies. You've got an office size, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. The most important piece of equipment or furniture in there is the the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones went out to find, as you remember. This is the box that they put the tablets in of the Ten Commandments. 
They also later put the uh, rod or the, the branch that budded that was put there to choose the priesthood or the high priest, which was Aaron the high priest. So Aaron's rod, they call it. It's just a, a branch that budded. And then a jar of manna, you remember. Later in their wilderness wanderings, they tucked the manna into the tabern- uh, into the Ark of the Covenant. So the most important thing in there was the covenant tablets. That was the promise God made. And the promise God made is you keep these commandments and I then will bless you. And I bless you most importantly with my presence. This was the symbol of God's presence among his people. This box that was made and gilded with gold that was carried with poles. And as David later learns, those poles are important. You carry them with poles. You don't put it on a cart. Doesn't matter if it's a new cart. As Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant when it hit a bump, you remember that? And God struck him dead and David got mad and he had no right to get mad because God said very clearly how to transport this box. And it's why it has sticks on it here so you can carry it the way you're supposed to. You're not supposed to touch it. So you got the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. You got those three things in it. The other thing you'll have, the first thing you run into when you get through the 30 foot wide opening into the tabernacle, and this is all laid out for you in the end of the book of Exodus, is the thing called the altar uh, of burnt offering. When you say the word altar, that's usually what we're thinking, unless you grew up in a church where you thought the front of the building was the altar. Come to the altar. There's no, there's no altar. The altar of the Old Testament was a big giant hibachi, as I like to say, a big, a big barbecue, and it's where they, they sacrificed animals. We'll learn more about that in a minute. But it was to always be burning. You always had to have fire on it. So it was constantly like a, the old Taco Bells back in the day, had the little fire pit out in front. You had this thing always burning fire, even though there was no sacrifice on it. And you kept it stoked, you kept it burning. And it was right there in the middle. Matter of fact, one Good Friday, I think I, I had commissioned the building of an altar. Do you remember that? I did it to the specs of, of the, the biblical altar. So this is the, the burning, uh, or the altar of, of the burning of, of burning sacrifice or the burnt offerings. And it was used for daily sacrifices. Every day there would be animals sacrificed on the altar, which also had poles on it. If you went into the holy place, which is the external 45 foot by 15 foot wide, I'm sorry, uh, 30 foot, 30 foot long, the, the whole tent was 45 feet long, 15 feet by 15 feet for the holy of holies. The antechamber, the holy place, before you went through the curtain to get to the holy of holies, that was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. And as you went into that, the thing that you would see as you walk through that to get against the backdrop of that curtain that kept you from the holy place to what they called the holiest place or the holy of holies was a little altar that looked a lot like the big altar that was out in the courtyard, but it was small. And on that you burnt incense. So it smelled really good in there. The altar of incense is what it's called. And it also had poles on it. And all these things you can see are to be carried because that's all they did with the tabernacle is they set it up, they worshiped, they worshiped. And then when God said, move out, they picked all these things up and the guys carried them on their shoulders. It stood right outside of the Holy of Holies. Incense was to be burned on it. And God instructed that you would to have a high priest once a year now, usually you burnt incense on it. Once a year, you would sprinkle blood on the altar of incense as a sin offering and a symbol of the sacrifice for the sins of all the people of the nation. Ark of the Covenant, altar burnt offering, the altar of incense. Inside that holy place, you also had the seven-branched candelabra, if you will. That would you call it, golden lampstand. The branches, of course, at the top were made to be crafted like the buds of almonds uh, for you almond lovers. You, that's what you had at the top of each of these branches. And it was to stay lit uh, every night, burning olive oil in the lampstand every day, trimmed every morning, 
and it stood there as a large reminder of God's favor to the people. As a matter of fact, later in Solomon's temple, we'll get to that. I don't want to steal all the discussion of that later, but you had a bunch of these in the holy place and even in the courtyard. Well, we'll talk about that. Then if you go to Israel today, there's one, according to the specs, that they want to put in the third temple. It's in a glass case down in, in, in Israel or in Jerusalem, and you'll see the relative size. These are big. These are not just things you put up on the mantle for Hanukkah, which is different, by the way. Then there's the bronze basin. That's right before you get into the holy place. I should have done this in a better order. If you walk through the 30-foot-wide, 7.5-foot-tall curtain, you'd see the altar of, of, for burnt offerings. Beyond that, before you got into the tent that's 45 feet long and 15 feet wide, the first part of it, the antechamber, is 30 feet long. Right before you get to that, you would see the basin. They called it the bronze basin. There was also another name for it. They called it uh, the laver of brass. They also called it that in the Bible. Uh, That was, so before you went into the holy place, which wasn't for normal folks, it was for the Levites and the priests who were serving God in that building, in that tent, you would wash, the ceremonial washings would be done in the laver of brass or the bronze basin. And it was to stand between the altar and the tabernacle, uh, the actual worship holy place. And then you had one last piece of equipment, at least that's described in the book of Exodus. More would be added as we'll talk about later, but was the table of showbread. And this might've been the most interesting as you saw this, if you were to see this, you would see like, they look like uh, pita bread, but they were loaves of bread, round loaves, and they would stack 12 of them up, one each for the tribe of Israel, six on a side. And you'd also have frankincense on the table as well. So frankincense was there and the loaves of bread, and they they bake that bread once a week and set it out there before God as a sign of his provision, as a sense of his goodness to the people. And then at the end of the week, the priests would eat this week old bread and they would bake more and, and replace it. They'd make more and, and replace it. And that was the table of showbread. They replaced the frankincense every week and they replaced the bread every week. So all of those things, can you see where they all are? The bull and the worshiper are just coming in there, the altar there. Those tables, by the way, around, do you see the tables in the outer court? Those are all for the, the, the preparing of the animals. And we're going to talk about the sacrifices here in a minute. But that's where they would slaughter or prepare the animals for the sacrifice. The basin, to wash yourself if you're a priest before you go into the holy place. The lamp stands in there, which keeps that place illuminated. And then you can see the altar of incense if you're looking really close. And then behind that, the cutaway, which wouldn't be like that, of course. Behind that other veil, that's the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Now, by the time that the second temple was built, and remember, it was destroyed. If you remember your timeline, Solomon builds it in the mid-10th century B.C., gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586, They go 70 years without it. Zerubbabel comes back. Ezra comes back. They build it again, the second temple. Herod then puts a ton of money into it by the time Christ is there and builds an incredible remodeling of the temple. And that curtain that was there, the first version of it was here, was torn when Jesus was crucified. Remember that? Because the whole point of all these layers of access was to be removed when Christ had died. And the Bible says poetically in Hebrews that his body was the curtain that was torn so that we can have access directly to God. You don't have the sacrifice. You don't need the brazen altar. You don't even need the the lamp or the incense or the frankincense or the bread. He's the bread of life. He is the one who is our mediator, bringing our prayers as as the incense would symbolize going up before God. He's our mediator who intercedes for us. 
He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the, the fulfillment of all these things. And there are books out there, uh, some of them you got to be careful of because they're wild-eyed. I mean, they'll, they'll make something out of every tent peg. But the point is, there's so many great pictures of Christ in all of these pieces of equipment. Ark of the Covenant, burnt uh, altar of burnt offering, altar of incense, golden lampstand, bronze basin, and the table of showbread. Leviticus, which will help us learn a little bit about the sacrifices that take place here. The title, shouldn't be hard to figure out, comes from the word we're used to, Levi. Levi, remember, was one of the 12 children of Israel, or Jacob. Jacob is also called Israel. The Levites were the appointed priestly tribe. So we see a book that's called Leviticus. We remember that this has to do with the priests. Moses and Aaron, remember, were of the tribe of Levi. Leviticus, uh, literally, from the Latin word, which part of the Bible for most of the church period, at least from Jerome till the Reformation, meant of, literally, of the, or concerning the Levites. That's what this title means. It's the book concerning the Levites. For your Levite, you better know this book, because you're the ones ministering in the tabernacle later in the temple, and you need to know all the things that go on here, because they're going to be asking you about all the sacrifices and which ones we need. So, Levi, remember, born back in Genesis 29, one of the sons of Jacob. That's the title. The author, we've already dealt with this, Moses, you know that. We won't take any time on that. The date of this, as we'll see, there's a parody here. We got two books written at the early part of the Exodus, and we have two books written at the end of the wilderness wanderings. But these are this, this one is at the beginning. So we've got Exodus and uh, Leviticus penned near the beginning of the wanderings, 1444 or soon thereafter. We have the book written. Relation to the timeline books. Now you already know this if you remember the chart. It's a supplement to Exodus. We've already seen in Exodus what's happening historically. The story is moving forward. We come after 275 years of silence as a population spurt takes place. 2.5 million people here are now traveling through the wilderness. And as they travel through the wilderness, they now have a worship center. And they also have instructions to worship God. And they need and a law to live by. Now they need to know the details about the worship center. And so we're going to get that in this book. It's written while they're camping outside at Mount Sinai, on the base of Mount Sinai. They're going to put all this to work as they start to worship. What are the basic instructions? Well, how to ceremonially relate to God. Now that's important. Though there are moral lessons in this book, the primary concept of this book is you need to know all these things need to be done in a particular way. This basin, this sacrifice, this incense, this showbread, this lamp, these curtains, who can go in, who can't. These are all ceremonies. Who can bring a sacrifice? When should they bring a sacrifice? These are all things that the New Testament would tell us were all leading to the reality that we now live in. We say, oh, that's really weird. Not weird. All of you probably did this unless you're a hippie when you got married. Think about it. Right? You went through a lot of rigmarole, and back in the day when you got married, you probably had ruffles and big, big bow ties and cummerbunds, and the girl had all this stuff on her head, and what's that all about? I thought you just want to get married, right? You're not, doing any, you're not putting any of that on tonight, are you? Why are you so into that? Well, it was important. We had a ceremony. Well, yeah, it's a ceremony. It meant something very important. You even took pictures of it. Do you see, God went through all of this rigmarole. At the beginning of his promise about relationship and connection and, 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 and reconciliation of his, of his sinful people, and it was all about, this is the wedding bef- you know, photo album, if you will. 
What does God want to, you know, what does all this mean? And a lot of you back in the day, you, and I say back in the day, it's still going on. You poured the sand together, or you lit the candles, a unity candle. What is that all that nonsense about? You don't need candles to get married, right? We don't need sand. We don't need poems. We don't need music. Just get married. Well, yeah, but it was important. It all symbolized something. So that's what Leviticus is trying to do. What's the ceremony all about? The ceremony is re- reflecting something profound and significant. And so God is going to give us a period of time where we have it. Now it's T-shirt and jeans time because all of it in the book of Hebrews says it's all passe. We don't need any of that anymore. Just like you don't go home and say, oh, come on, put the cummerbund on. You know, there's no need for that. We don't need to see any of that anymore. It played a role and it was very important, but the role has been fulfilled. I don't ever plan to wear one again. Thank you. Now, during this time, how we live in distinction to others. Now think about that. The ceremonies were important because they distinguished us from other people. Just like as you were, I mean, even the bride is going to be distinguished from her bridesmaids and certainly going to dress differently from the people in the group. A lot of women do not come to weddings in white dresses, right? That's that's not appropriate. There's a distinction here. The bride is getting married. She's wearing that white dress. Girls don't come up with big veils and trains behind them. No, no, no. The one getting married has that. And even as you go to the feast, the wedding feast, right? You may be sitting there in an outdoor feast. I've been to many of these receptions that are outdoors. And I could stand up, look over the wall of this little beautiful place that we're in. And I can see people eating outside at, you know, Del Taco or whatever. Now, they're eating different than I'm eating. They're dressed different than I'm dressed. Because something's going on inside this compound that is important and significant and sacred. And what's going on out there, well, it's just everyday life. God is making distinctions for his people for 1,400 years to say, I want you guys to do all this. It's a long wedding ceremony. And now the reality is going to come because Christ is going to appear. So this is what the book of Leviticus is all about. I know people bash the Bible, right? You believe that homosexuality is wrong, man. Well, you know, in the Bible, you can't mix fabrics. You can't have two kinds of seeds in your field, right? Where's the long hair on the side of your your head? It's just, shut up. I mean, this is so ridiculous, Right? That's like saying, I'm not going to do what you say because one time you made me wear a cummerbund. You made me put on a tux. There was a time for that. There was a reason for that. Now, there are certain things that continue on. There are moral instructions you've got to keep for the whole of your marriage, but there are instructions for the wedding ceremony that are just for a time. So stop having your critics toss out biblical commands like God's sexual ethics, for instance, that's so you know, in question these days because they can point to something in Leviticus. This is, well, you can't eat certain foods, but you don't do that. Well, you're right, we don't do that. Right? It's just like I don't wear a tux home tonight doesn't mean I'm not married. I understand the placement of these things and for the purpose that they were given. Let's outline the book. Very simple outline. First 10 chapters, we're going to talk about the sacrificial system. How do you worship through sacrifices? Sacrifices themselves are ceremonies. That's what they are. That's like saying, how do you, how do you walk down the aisle? And, and when do you walk down? And do you take the mother and who escorts her? And all of that. The sacrifices are all ceremonies. They're all symbols. But he's going to talk about how to do it. Worship through clean rituals. There's lots of things you can do at this particular ceremony that's going to last for 1,400 years. Things you can do, things you can't do. Things that you can't do if you've got certain things going on in your life, things you can do. Things you're supposed to do when someone's born. Things you're supposed to do when someone dies. Things you're supposed to do when you get a certain kind of de- disease. Things, all of these clean and unclean rules are all ceremonies. They're clean, I call them clean rituals. Chapters 11 through 15. And then all these ceremonial instructions. That's the rest of the book, chapters 16 through 27. Got all kinds of various instructions. And we're going to look at those as we break them down into some 
things here that I've listed for you. Offerings, dietary laws, festivals, and special years. Let's think through those, okay? The offerings. Offerings. First category. We're going to look at several here. There's the burnt offerings. Book of Leviticus says there's one kind of offering that you need to start with and it's very, very important. It's called the burnt offering. It's the most common offering in all the Israelite sacrificial ceremonies. It's performed every morning. It's performed every evening. Special days. The burnt offerings. And by the way, it's called a burnt offering because guess what you do with the sacrifice? But you can add these words, all up. You burn it all up. It's just burn up. That's a waste, it seems like. Yeah, well, that's what you do with the burnt offering. You burn it all up. Nothing left. What's the point of the burnt offering? According to the book of Leviticus, it's to atone for sin. Now, if you got man, money and you're a cattle man, you got, you got animals, well, then you bring an animal. You bring a, you bring a, a big animal from your herd. If you're poor, you can bring all the way down to a, a pigeon. You can bring, you can, if you don't have any money, you can just buy a pigeon with what you have. Someone will sell you a pigeon near the, the, the worship center. But everyone's to bring an animal for the burnt offering. In the beginning, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it even tells us you lay your hand on the head of the animal. If you're poor, on the head of that little bird, and you stand there as the priest accepts that life of that animal that did nothing morally wrong, it can't even do something morally wrong, and it has to die and be completely burned up. And that symbol is one so that you can live. Just like in the garden when you had animal skins to clothe Adam, the word clothe or to cover is the word atone, to atone for your sin. Before God, you're unacceptable. You're naked now. There's shame. You need to cover the covering now that you didn't have that that concern or need before. The death of an animal is a picture of the covering you need. Of course, animal blood can't cover. Animal sacrifice can't cover us. We need human righteousness. We need human punishment. That's why all this comes down to human sacrifice, which is not haphazard, and God never accepts, accepts human sacrifice except for one the one that can actually purchase our redemption. Then there's the meal offering. The meal offering is also sometimes called the tribute offering. This is a portion of what you have that you have grown, maybe cakes that you've made, unleavened cakes, grains that you bring, foods of various kind. These are given as a gift of of thanksgiving. They're given as a token portion of what God has provided for you the meal offering. When you bring that meal offering, you leave it and the priest eats it. You don't burn it. So you bring those bread, that bread, it doesn't go on the the showbread table. That's special bread that's made by the priest. This is bread that you bring. You say, well, God has been good to me. I'm giving a portion of how he's blessed me. I give it to the priest. The priests don't have land. They don't have bulls. They don't have goats. They don't have fields that they're ever going to farm. They don't even have property in the kingdom. So we bring them this food and they eat it. So that's a complete gift as it's given to God, but it's consumed by the spiritual leaders of the camp. And there's the peace offering, the burnt offering, the meal offering, also known as the tribute offering, and the peace offering. The NIV is one translation that calls this the fellowship offering. It's usually called the peace offering or the thank offering, the free will offering it's even called sometimes. Now this is an interesting one and I guess the name of it is helpful when you think of peace or I guess this is why the NIV translates it this way, the fellowship offering because it's the meal that's not burnt up, that's the burnt offering. It's not the thank offering or or the meal offering where you come and bring the meal and leave it for the priest and his families but it's one that's shared and that's an interesting thing. You bring your sacrifice and you share it with the priest and you eat together. This is in response 
to something good that's happened to you. It's not, hey, God has given us a good year, and so we have our stuff and we bring it to the priest. This is something happened. My wife was ill. I thought she was going to die. She recovered, and I prayed, and God got, got her back to full health. So I'm bringing a, a, a fellowship offering or a peace offering to God. I feel like things are good now. Maybe I, was, I needed some special deliverance from some problem, or I had some issue, and God made it all right. So the peace offering is the thing that I now bring as an act of thanksgiving. Could be an animal to sacrifice, uh, but when I bring it, we eat it together. The priests, the leaders, and me. Peace offering, a shared meal. Sin offering. This is pretty serious here. This is when there's been something done that you know is wrong. It's not just the regular, I know I'm a sinner, I need some atonement. This is some kind of situation that what's going to get worse in the next one in a second, but I know there's a sin that needs to be dealt with and it needs to be responded to. The sin offering is when I have, it could even be like the skin disease or when Jesus tells the former uh, leper to go to the priest, show himself to the priest. There has to be something here that is fixed and, and I need the ceremonial go ahead that everything's good that the the jacket's back on the ties back on it's the way it ought to be many of these are ceremonial but it's ceremonial it's sin but it's sin of the ceremonies of falling short of something that's been done and i didn't do it couldn't do it whatever the situation was but some kind of ceremonial ceremonial purification was needed the interesting thing about this one is when you bring this like an, an animal to burn on the offering, you only burn the fat portions of the animal. So it smells really good. The worship center always smelt really good. And you burn the fat portions, but you then have the meat of the sacrifice and that goes to the priests and the priests and their families are able to eat. Then there's the trespass offering. This is the most serious of all. This is some kind of clear violation of God's law that you've done in some immoral act. You didn't give when you should have. You didn't help when you should have. You did something you should not have done, and it's something that is not ceremonial, but moral in that regard. There is, as some have written, an objective guilt for a lawful violation, the trespass offering. Whenever the law was clearly violated, and I should say there was a sinful act that was done, not just a a lapse in, in terms of a ceremonial regulation. And this, again, the fat portions only were to be burned, and then the priest would be able to feed the Levites through those sacrifices. These are the six, I'm sorry, the five offerings that are described here in Leviticus. Let's talk about the dietary laws. Again, the dietary laws are all passe. So are the sacrifices. And all the books that are being written, because everyone's into eating funny these days, they always want to say, well, this is biblical because it's in the Bible, and the Bible has this. God has declared all foods clean, right? I mean, you'd be stupid to eat dirt or dirt clods or rocks, but if it's edible and you want to eat it, you can eat it. This has nothing to do with our dietary laws today. There is no dietary laws today. So these, again, were so that I can be distinct from the others, particularly in social intercourse of eating and having meals and feasting, which is often what happened in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, and God was getting them ready to be distinct all the way up to the time of Christ. When it came to mammals, you had to have a cloven hoof and chewing the cud. You couldn't have one without the other. If you're going to eat a clean mammal, you got to have that. So you can eat all that you want here of cattle, bison, antelope, caribou, deer. You can eat that. If they are carnivores, though, uh, you can't. You can't eat dogs, can't eat rats, can't eat coyotes, of course, can't eat pigs, things that don't meet the qualifications of cloven hoof and chewing the cud, right? Can't eat the donkey, can't eat the horse. 
Talk about birds. It came to birds, you couldn't eat, the Bible says here in Leviticus, scavengers or birds of prey. Couldn't eat scavengers or birds of prey. So you couldn't eat buzzards, cranes, eagles, bats. I don't know why you want to eat a bat. Not much meat on the bat, it doesn't look like. But other than that, you're fine. Chicken, dove, duck, goose, pheasant, you're free to eat. Reptiles. If you're really hungry, I guess, and you're thinking of eating a reptile, the Bible just says, don't even think about it. Just stay away from the reptiles. Let them crawl around in your backyard, but don't eat them. I got lots of them in my backyard. They do their push-ups out there in the sun. All right, water animals, living creatures in the water. Got to have fins and scales. Okay? So you can eat bass, carp, bluegill, cod, perch, salmon, trout. But if it doesn't have scales and fins, you can't eat it. You cannot eat it. Can't eat clam, crab, sorry, oyster, jellyfish. I know you want a jellyfish. Octopus, seal, well, whales, can't eat any of that. Insects, which I just happened to see on the news this morning. People saying we ought to be eating more insects because they're full of protein and they're good for you. And they're putting live ones in the saucepan, a little butter. I still wasn't tempted, even with the butter. But in the Bible, it says if you want to eat the grass, grasshopper family, great, have at it. You can eat types of locusts crickets, grasshoppers, but basically everything else, no. Specifically, it says winged quadrupeds. If you have four feet, no. If you don't have those jointed jumping legs, yeah, you can't eat those insects, which is most of them. Those were the dietary laws. The dietary laws often in ancient Near Eastern cultures were tied in some ways to their gods and the worship of their gods. And in many ways, if you had this kosher list of things you could and couldn't eat based on Leviticus, and the priests were to teach all the people how to do this, well then... You couldn't just go to any party and hang out, which is certainly something God was trying to get people to do before the coming of the Spirit. Hopefully the Spirit of God is in your heart now, and there's no question there's a lot of places you can't and shouldn't hang out. But in those days, this dietary restriction helped people and kept them on the straight and narrow in their social interactions. The festivals. Of course, the festivals started with the Sabbath, which was a holy observance every week to God. It was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was a unique, distinctive sign to the people of Israel in the Old Covenant, particularly tied to the Mosaic Law. Yes, you had the pattern of work and rest that came from the very beginning. Yes, you had that. But here you had the Mosaic Law saying this is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Just like circumcision, this became something that you did every week as opposed to once in your life. So the Sabbath was a big part of Old Testament Mosaic law. It was one of the ceremonies. It was one of the ceremonies that was built into the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are just one of hundreds of commandments, but there was one there on the tablets, which went into, by the way, a ceremonial box that you don't have anymore either. I understand there are moral laws, most of them, many of them, but many of them ceremonies and the Sabbath was one. Then you had the Passover once a year. It took place in the spring. It's always tied to our Easter today from a Christian perspective. It was connected to the unleavened bread or the feast of unleavened bread and the first fruits. And that was a time to remember the deliverance of God from Egypt. The Passover, just as the word would depict, was the angel of death passing over. I'm not, I'm not now being punished along with everyone else. I'm being freed in that case, as Paul would say, by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, at this point, they were thinking back to Egypt's day and the provision that came as they left Egypt without any time for their bread to rise, with no leaven in their bread and God's provision. So the Passover unleavened bread, first fruits, was all a reminder of God taking care of them, keeping them from the punishment, and providing for their needs. Fifty days later, that's where we get the word Pentecost, 50 days later, you had the Feast of Harvest. 
which is a reminder of God's ongoing provision, not only to deliver you from death when you should have died when you were a slave, but now he keeps you going all the time. So this was early summer. Every early summer, you would celebrate uh, a very special ceremony and celebration of celebrating God's bounty in your daily life, the Feast of Pentecost. Sabbath, Passover, Pentecost. Number four, trumpets, the trumpets, Feast of Trumpets. This was a holy day and a day of rest and worship and ceremonies that related to it. It was a day of blowing trumpets, as the word would say and depict, obviously. It fell on the first day of the, of the new moon of the seventh month, Tishri, which is the fall, which we're in right now. It was announced by the sound of trumpets. All the work was to cease on that day. You had a holy gathering, a holy convocation, as they said, and it was held as people would not be allowed to have any normal work. You couldn't get on your blackberries in the olden days or your laptops. You had to pay attention to rejoicing and celebrating what God had done. Lots of sacrifices were offered on that day. Very important. Beginning things starting fresh. Then you had the most important day, the Day of Atonement. The most important day on the calendar for the religious, those who were thinking very carefully about the problem of sin. This was not a happy day. This was not a day of celebration and feasting. This is a day actually of just the opposite. It's the one day a year that was required in the Bible for Old Testament people to fast. They weren't to eat. They were to, as the Bible says, afflict themselves in the context of that we're led to believe is the fasting or the withholding of food that particular day. It was a sign of contrition because on that day you had the covering. Atonement means to cover. And in Hebrew, by the way, it's Yom, which is day, Kippur of atonement, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, which happens coming up soon here on our calendar this year. Leviticus 16 talks about the high priest entering the holy place, which in that day was 15 feet by 15 feet. It was a little curtained off room that he would go into. There would be blood on the incense of altar of incense, and the people would remember their sin as a nation and individually. Then there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, just like the big tabernacle, now this was a reference to small tabernacles where they lived. They lived in tents as they came out of the wilderness, and they were in the middle of this right now. Actually, at the beginning of this is Moses wrote these requirements, but what you had was the camping celebration, I like to call it, when they pitched tents and celebrate God's provision in the wilderness. It's also called the Feast of Booths. You might know it as that, as the Bible also calls it. I preached once on this, I think. I made a tie to Christmas, 15th day of the month of Tishri, mid-October, five days after the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted a week, week-long celebration. Special years, two special years. One was the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, the land and the people were to rest. You weren't to plow your fields. You weren't to till your ground. You were just to let everything rest. And you let your people rest. Obviously, they had to do daily chores and all the rest, but you didn't have the kind of farming that you would have the rest of the other six years. This was a test of faith in God's provision. So many of these ceremonies were to remind you, God took care of you in the past. God will take care of you now. This is so important, I think, even today to remember God built into the ceremonies and calendars of the Old Testament to remind you that if anyone doesn't worry, it's us. We don't worry. We don't worry about coming earthquakes. We don't worry about hurricanes. We prepare. We're wise. We do all of that. But we are not stressed like the rest of the world because we have a shepherd who governs our lives. And the Sabbath year was a test of faith. Can you trust me that I'll give you enough? Just like on the, the, the wilderness with the manna, you collect for six days. I'll take care of you on that sixth day. The seventh day you'll be fine. And when it comes to the seventh year, you'll be fine. Just trust me. God actually sent them off to 70 years in exile because they didn't obey this 
for the exact number of years that he racked up for those 70 years. And then there was the year of Jubilee. This was every 50th year. After seven sets of seven years, after 49 years, you had the year of Jubilee. This was a time when all the debts were cleared and all the land returned to their owners. And that was the real important part of all this. God wanted perpetually the land to stay in the 12 tribes the way that it was assigned when Joshua enters the promised land. And because of that, 50 years after every 50 years, all the family tribes retain all their property. Everybody gets the property back. Now, 50 years, I mean, that's a generation's time. People that were young are now old. A lot of people born. Every family tribe got to have all their property back, and everything started over. It was a great way to keep their economy and their land going the way God had designed it. Those were the two special years in the book of Leviticus. Numbers comes from the Latin Vulgate, meaning to count. There was a Greek version of this in the Septuagint as well, which is we get the word arithmetic from, and it means counting. And because there was two major censuses, sensei, they had a census taken twice in this book. The author, of course, is Moses. We don't need to talk about that. The main concept, as I said in the timeline books, because this is a timeline book, is wanderings. They're wandering. Key chapter, hopefully you remember, it's chapter 14, when they failed the test of faith at Kadesh Barnea. They were there at Kadesh Barnea, just south of the promised land. If you look at the Dead Sea in your mind, and go off there toward the Mediterranean, right down there, Kadesh Barnea. They were going to come up into the promised land from the wilderness, and they blew it, and God sent them back. The date, this is the end of the wilderness wanderings, 1446 B.C. So we get all that went on in the wilderness wanderings recorded for us now in the book of Numbers. The key people in this book, of course, the three we've already seen, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, that's true. We meet Caleb here. I mean, we met him before, I suppose, but now we get to see he's another important lieutenant. He's one of the two faith-filled spies that saw all the challenges and said, we trust God, which God was trying to teach all these people to trust him. And yet, when it came to a hard test of faith, they uh, failed, at least 10 out of 12. Another important figure in this book is Korah. He looms large in this book, and he's remembered throughout the Bible as a rebellious leader, a leader of a rebellion against Moses, and God took care of him swiftly. Balaam is an important figure in this book that you need to remember. He's the prophet for hire, that Balak, the king of Moab, hired to curse Israel. Those are some key players in the book. Our outline, as we travel quickly through the book, is a traveling story from chapters 1 through 12. As they travel from Sinai, remember that's where we left off, at least in the map, down south in Sinai, they go to Kadesh Barnea, which I should have put a map here for you, but it's at the bottom. Well, that doesn't help much, I guess. But yes, southwest of the bottom of the Dead Sea. Then there's a lot of chaos in the desert, chapter Chapters 13 through 19, right in the middle of that, obviously, is the Kadesh Barnea failure. They go to the front door of the promised land, and they do not trust God. And when they said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, we blew it, after God said, no, you're going back, you're not going to enter the promised land, you're going to die in the wilderness, everyone over the, you know, an adult age is going to be dead, your kids and your teenagers are going to grow up and take this land. They said, we're sorry, we'll go back. They even went out there and tried, some of them, to fight and go into the promised land, and God said no, much like we see of Esau. Though they sought their repentance with tears, God forgave them. That's great, but the consequences were going to stand firm. Chaos in the desert included a crisis of unbelief and the crisis of rebellion. You got Korah's rebellion in there, and you got the 12 spies and the 10 that said, we can't possibly do this. Then there's drama in the rest of the book, chapters 20 through 36, and it's full of all kinds of things, and I didn't break it all down, but you get Moses striking the rock. You get Edom, refusal to let them pass through their territory, death of Aaron, transition of the priesthood, the serpent crisis, all the biting and the 
gracious provision of the snake, the bronze snake on a pole, which I preached on one Easter, I think, didn't I? Battles with kings and armies. Balak hires Balaam, the king of Moab. Moab ends up winning that battle. And if you, I guess that's the only time I can tell the story, but Balaam is hired to curse Israel. He can't do it. He's like Fonzie trying to say he's sorry, right? He tries to kick out the, the curse and out comes a blessing. And he's got all these oracles they are called as God reveals things, amazing things, even Christological things through Balaam's mouth. And then you think, oh, God won. Well, he did in, in, in that round, but Balaam ends up getting the Moabite women to entice the Israelite men to engage in sexual immorality and idolatry with their gods, and then God ends up turning on his own people. So I call it Moab's revenge. The women lead the men of Israel astray to worship Baal, and God then sends a, sends a curse upon the people. And then Phinehas, I guess the bright spot there is Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, is the priest who, when one of the men marches out obstinately in front of Moses, here goes um, Phinehas picking up a spear, and as he takes the Moabite woman into the tent, he goes in there and kills them both, and you think, wow, this guy is going to get in trouble with God, and God says, he's a hero, and because of his boldness and zeal for my name, we're going to stop this plight and this curse upon the people. Another census at the end of the book, transition of power from Moses to Joshua. Deuteronomy, title, Deuter, second, namos, law, that's Greek, second law, the second re-giving or restatement of the law. The author, Moses, you know that. The date, end of the wilderness wandering. So you can think this all through now. It makes sense. At the end of the book of Genesis, we got Exodus and Leviticus early in the wilderness wandering. Numbers, Deuteronomy, at the end of the wilderness wandering. Relation to the timeline books, this is a supplement to Numbers. We know what's all going on in the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. Now we're going to get a retelling of the law. It's written at the ends of Moses' life. Actually, it's three basic speeches of Moses. The basic instructions are to hearten the Israelites. Okay, you're going to go to the promised land. You're going to go into the promised land without me, but I need you to be ready. God has been faithful. You need to be faithful. A lot of legal details now you need to remember as you go in there. Here's how you flesh out the law of Moses or the law of God, as Moses said it. And now you're going to need to go in and you need to keep these things. Basically, the whole book is an encouragement for them to obey. And he does it with the stick and the carrot. He does it by saying, God will curse you if you don't. There's always consequences to sin. And he'll bless you if you do. You got all that? All right. Then I'll move, I'll move on then. The outline. Here's the quick outline. There are three speeches, basically. You got the historical review that Moses gives in his first speech. God is faithful. Second speech he gives. Here are the legal clarifications for the new generation that's going to take over and go into the promised land. And then the last part. Rewards and consequences, blessing and curses. Here's what's going to happen. Three speeches of Moses, and there's a fourth thing, which is simply the historical, as I said before, as I started to talk about the Pentateuch, of God transitioning leadership, and physically we see Moses die and Joshua take the reins, and we see all that play out in chapters 31 through 34. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time together. Thanks for your word. I do pray that this 30,000-foot view of the Bible would be a helpful thing for us as we continue to study your word and get to know you better through it. Thanks for this crowd. Thanks so much for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.